Ellie was raised in a church that believed the Bible. They enforced the rules and they fought to take America back for God. Ellie professed faith and got baptized when she was 13 years old, and she became the star of her youth group, passing out tracts to strangers about the gospel and about the Ten Commandments uh, and about what God requires of a godly nation. She stood for righteousness and she stood for sound doctrine. She got into a Bible college and took an entire year off to be a missionary in Latin America. She was ready to explain to other Christians why their group was wrong and why her group was more theologically sound. And as she enrolled in a fundamentalist Bible college, she got to her senior year. And that was the year that they found out. You see, Ellie had a secret Ellie had an addiction, and Ellie's drug of choice was men, particularly older men, father figures. She was always looking for someone who would love her, someone who would see her in her shame and brokenness and embrace her. She couldn't go more than a few days without collapsing into the arms of a man that she did not know. She wanted to change, but she couldn't. And her church, when they found out, was ashamed of her. They were disgraced. And so was Ellie. They did everything they knew in their power to change her from the outside in. They threatened punishment if she didn't change her behaviors. They threatened to reject her. They sent over a couple elders to her house to rough her up and let her know who's boss. Let her know how she had to live her life. They put Uh, her in a a counseling center that would help her change. They put GPS on her phone and trapped her down and would send deacons to unknown addresses where she might be to check to make sure that she wasn't sinning. Finally, her Bible college expelled her, and her church was about to excommunicate her when she left town. And she spent a long time not knowing what she believed, not wanting to know if she wanted anything at all to do with Christianity because she had, she had tried Christianity. She had been the poster child for Christianity. She had given it everything she had in the most intense form and it could do nothing to change her. See, there was a kind of religion, if we can call it Christianity at all, that had absolutely no power to change her. She had been the poster child of a religious movement, but inside she was in bondage to longings and addictions against which her faith could offer no resistance. And this kind of moralistic religion, it had a powerful pull precisely because it promises you that you're going to be right. You're going to be one of the good people. You're going to measure up. And it's precisely the kind of religion to which the churches in Galatia in the first century were turning because there had been teachers rising up in their midst, visiting them from church to church, telling them that Jesus was not enough. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to obey food laws. You needed to to not handle certain things, not touch certain things. You had to live as a Jew and Jesus was good, but, but you needed something more to really experience and believe and receive the grace of God. And for those who had been raised Jewish, it would have felt familiar, certain, manageable. We're going to read from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. As Paul 
speaks to them with the resources that he has an apostle, as an apostle appointed by Jesus. He writes this. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the word of our God. What what do we see here? First, we see here an absolutely exclusive claim about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Look at Paul's argument. He says that what this other group of religious leaders is teaching perverts the gospel of Jesus in verse 6 and 7. They're saying there's something more you need than Jesus in order to be saved. And he he says it's not really a gospel at all because the real gospel is all about what Jesus accomplished on the cross to save you fully, finally, and forever. The gospel is not an instruction manual telling you how to live your life so that you can become acceptable to God. The problem is is that what these teachers were, were stripping away is the one thing that made Christianity unique. What they were stripping away is the message about Jesus being the only Savior. And he says that where you land with this gospel, where you land with Jesus has eternal consequences. He says, if anyone comes to you and says anything other than the free grace of Jesus alone saves you and rescues you and brings you into the presence of God, if anybody adds anything onto that, he says, anathema esto, let him be cut off, let him be eternally condemned. In no uncertain terms, he's saying they need to go to hell. And he says it twice for emphasis, because in in adding to the gospel of Jesus, with your legalism, with your moralism, with all of your add-ons and accretions in addition to Christ, what you're doing is you're actually removing Christ himself, because he is not a self-help manual. He is a redeemer. See, this unique message about Jesus is is something Jesus himself taught. I mean, look look at how unique Jesus is in his own views. The the Hebrew scriptures and Jewish literature uh, of the intertestamental period had all these ways of depicting God as the savior of Israel. And Jesus appropriates that language with reference to himself again and again. The Hebrew Bible and the intertestamental literature had talked about God, the Lord Yahweh, as the sower of Israel who plants the word of God in the hearts of his people. And Jesus applied that image to himself, saying that he was the sower who plants the word of God. The, the Hebrew Bible had, had talked about the Lord Yahweh as the owner of the vineyard, which is Israel. And Jesus reinforces this image, quoting Isaiah 5 in the parable of the tenants, and then implicitly self-identifies himself as the vineyard owner. 
You know what he's saying there. They understood what he was communicating. The Hebrew Bible described God as the one who would direct the harvest at the end of the age. And Jesus says it's the son of man who he identifies as himself who's going to send out his angels to gather in his harvest at the end of the age. Jesus claims to be the judge at the end of history saying that the son of man is going to sit on his throne separating the sheep and the goats. I mean, if, if I said that, Greg Johnson is going to stand before, he's going to sit on the throne of God at the end of history, and Greg Johnson is going to separate all humanity into sheep and goats. And I'm going to say to some of them, hey, I never knew you. I mean, you wouldn't think I'm a good moral teacher. You would think that what I'm saying is something very insidious. Yet Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father. It's all or nothing with him. He says, if you hear my word and believe him who sent me, you have crossed over from death to life and will not be condemned. It's all about him. The the Hebrew Bible said that Yahweh, God, was the rock of Israel. And Jesus calls himself the rock and calls you to build your house on him. God was the shepherd of Israel, and Jesus says that he is the shepherd of Israel. The Old Testament described God as the bridegroom of Israel, and the rabbis had followed in this tradition, and then Jesus appropriates that for himself, calling himself the bridegroom of Israel. The Sabbath was the holiest day and the greatest of the commandments for the Jewish people at the time, and Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying there? The the temple in, in Jerusalem was the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus said in his presence, he said, surely I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. How can you be greater than the symbolic presence of God except the active physical presence of God incarnate. He called himself the son of man using the language spoken of by the prophet Daniel when he spoke of one who was given authority, glory, sovereign power that all peoples, nations, and men of every language would worship, whose dominion would never end, one who is eternal, who walks in the presence of God himself and who all people worship. Only God had authority to forgive sins. And in the passage that Riley just read about the healing of the paralytic, Jesus Jesus forgives sins. And what do the religious leaders say? This man is guilty of blasphemy. No one can sin, can forgive sins against God, but, but God alone. You know, religious fanatics don't execute people for saying, love your neighbor as yourself. They execute people for claiming to be God because that's blasphemous and they knew what Jesus was saying. Even at the end of Matthew's gospel, the disciples all worship Jesus and he receives it from them. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, Jesus made claims which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. He writes, there is no halfway house and there is no parallel in other religions. Had you gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. Had you gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. Had you gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. Had you gone to Confucius and said, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, Remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. 
In my opinion, he says, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you are a poached egg when you're looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you're God, there's no chance for you. We may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people with whom he actually interacted. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And that's why the early Christians worshipped Jesus. These were strict Jewish monotheists. They believed that Jesus was God in flesh. Paul in Colossians uh, says that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Philippians, another parallel letter to this one, he says that Jesus is the very nature of God. The author to the Hebrews says it was through Jesus that the universe was made and, and, and that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. To turn from Jesus is to turn from God. To turn from him to any other path is a path that leads away from salvation, Paul is explaining. It's not good news at all. And this is subtle because none of these teachers were actually renouncing Jesus in their teachings. They were just adding to Jesus something that the Bible did not add. They were just saying, follow our rules, follow our way, become Jewish like us. But to Paul, it was the same thing as abandoning Christ. Verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. It's a gospel issue. It's a salvation issue. It's the issue on which the church stands or falls because it's the issue that either makes you a Christian or a non-Christian, whether Christ alone is your Savior. Coming from Paul, this exclusive claim about Jesus means a great deal because remember that Paul hated Christianity. There's no question about it. Uh, you know, Paul's own story is, is, is he had been thinking, I hate the way Christians play fast and loose with Jewish traditions. He was a Pharisee. He thought, I hate the way that, that these Christians mix with Gentiles. I hate the way that they claim Jesus as Lord. I hate the way that they claim that he's still alive. I hate the way Christians eat food that's ceremonially unclean. I hate the way they disregard certain of our Jewish laws. I hate them. I hate what they believe. I hate how they live their lives. And so I will fulfill my duties to suppress them, to arrest them, and when possible, to execute Christians because I hate everything about them. There was nothing about Christianity that Paul liked. And then he saw Jesus on a road to Damascus and he saw that he was alive. And he thought, I hate this, but I have to deal with it. See, it's so different from the way we make decisions today. We choose our religion based on what we like rather than based on what's actually true. Paul didn't do it that way. He hated Christianity. He didn't like anything about it. He didn't like anything about the Christians, but he saw Jesus. He said, I have to deal with this. This is reality. I have to change how I feel, how I think, how I live. Everything is thrown into disarray. He's modeling a radically different approach to truth, looking at the fact of Jesus and Christ's claims on his life as Lord and saying, this is true. And I have to change. Are you dealing with Jesus, friends? 
Are you dealing with the reality of Christ's claim on your life? It's an absolutely exclusive claim of lordship over us as the only redeemer. We see an absolutely exclusive claim here about the uniqueness of Jesus. Second point, why is it that we find this so offensive? You know, Paul realized it was offensive. It had been offensive to him. And he talks in here about, you know, he's not trying to please men. He says in verse 10, verse 11, if I were just people pleasing, I would still be Jewish. I would not be a Jewish follower of Jesus. So he knew it was offensive. For him, it was because he was bucking his pharisaical Jewish traditions, which made a whole lot of his own countrymen very, very, very angry at him and put him in their theological crosshairs and in our own cultural context today, it seems arrogant to even, even dangerous to make any exclusive claim about religion. You know, many of the new atheists argue, uh, argued that exclusive religious claims have actually worsened human conflict and led to great devastation. And, uh, and their argument is that when you take normal human conflicts that happen anyway, we all get into conflict between people groups, between individuals, and then you add absolute religious ideology onto that, then somebody who is your opponent instead becomes a demon. Somebody who is merely wrong instead becomes the embodiment of evil. And so it exacerbates conflict. And I think at this point they're right. I, I agree with Tim Keller in saying, yeah, you got us. Uh, you know, think of the Crusades, how much more blood was shed because somebody put God's name onto the conflict. You look at conflicts today in Syria or in Yemen, uh, the way these conflicts have been worsened by aligning war with sectarian rivalries. And yet, this is not something that is merely true of religious perspectives. You look at the French Revolution. Uh, which absolutely rejected traditional religion. It was officially atheistic. It enthroned human reason. And yet the French Revolution was one of the more violent revolutions in human history. And in 1793, when Madame de Roland went to the guillotine on trumped-up charges, she mockingly bowed down to the statue that personified liberty in the Place de la Revolution. And she said, Liberty, what crimes are committed in your name? It's not just religion. Liberty. And atheism. Think of the killing fields of Cambodia under Pol Pot in the 1970s, his atheistic communist vision driving the death of millions of human beings. We can only conclude that there is an impulse toward violence that is buried deep in the human heart and that can arise in any culture and with any view of religions. And yet still this seems arrogant within our context to make a claim about Christianity being the only means of salvation. So what's going on with us? Why, why is that? And there is a, a culturally relative assumption that's at play here. Uh, these sorts of assumptions tend to be uncritically adopted within a culture. They're just accepted as truisms, and they're powerful precisely because they're assumed and therefore evade any critical evaluation. In this case, the big assumption is that one cannot claim that one particular religion is true in a way that other religions are not. One cannot make exclusive claims about God, truth, religion. You have to be inclusive of all religious perspectives. And that sounds very humble, and it sounds very eye-opening. It sounds very enlightened. It sounds like something that would pull the rug out from under all that religious violence. And yet, inclusivism like that is covert exclusivism. Let me explain. There are a lot of different views of religions out there. 
And when you claim that your inclusive view of religions is the only true one and that any view that disagrees within your inclusive view of religions is therefore false, what you are doing is you are making an exclusive claim that your Western, enlightened, Northern European white perspective is objectively true and everybody who's lived before or in a different culture or different context is therefore wrong because your tribe is the one that is right. And I don't know how it's more humble to objectify a white northern European, you know, 19th, 20th century perspective. I don't know how um, that's more humble than saying that Paul was right. Um, you know, we all tend to look back on our grandparents and roll our eyes because of things that they assumed, their pet ways of looking at the world, assumptions they made, ways they thought about things, and you kind of roll your eyes and you chuckle, but you say, oh, that's the way people back then thought. But understand, you think that we've got it all worked out in 2018 in Western Europe and North America, that we've figured out objectively what's true. Understand that your great-grandchildren someday are going to be talking about you and the ways that you assumed things and things that you believed and your religious perspectives, and they're going to be rolling their eyeballs and laughing at you because uh, none of us has received a perspective of objectivity. Inclusivism sounds broad and open-minded and charitable, but it's no less exclusive than any other perspective on religions. The question we could be asking, is there a perspective on religions that actually makes us more loving and more charitable towards those with whom we disagree about religion? And there, I think Christianity offers some very, very deep resources, gospel resources, because it's the only perspective that says at the very center of your faith, identity, and life as a human being is a God who saved you by dying for you when you were his enemy. And when a God dying for his enemy is at the center of your heart perspective, then that gives you incredible resources to actually love those with whom you disagree about religion, those that you consider wrong. And when a follower of Jesus gets it, they actually become more inclusive in their relationships, more inclusive in their love and acceptance and compassion toward those with whom they disagree. And yet there are other reasons that this gospel exclusivity, this exclusive vision of Jesus offends us. And it also offends our pride on a more primal level. Um, the gospel tells me I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me. The gospel says I am so helpless that I can't contribute anything at all to my salvation. Some of you are like, oh, that's great. I can't contribute anything. God's got it. For me, that drives me nuts. I'm an ENTJ. I'm an Enneagram 3. I'm wired for my accomplishments to be an achiever, to be a success. I'm wired to be a performer, a status seeker. I don't want to be a failure. I want to be valuable based on what I do on my tasks. I want prestige. I want to, you know, I actually enjoy the performance treadmill. I enjoy knocking things off my list. I get a, a palpable thrill in my heart. My soul leaps whenever I've gotten through my post-it note. I don't want to be the guy who has to have someone else bail me out. I don't want to be the guy who has to have somebody else pay my bills. It's so un-American. If you want anything in this life, kid, you're going to have to work for it. If you want to be anything in this life, you've got to earn it. We're not going to take any charity in this family. God helps those who... No, he doesn't. God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. 
The Bible says it's to him who does not work but trusts God that his faith is reckoned as righteousness. The gospel offends my pride. You know, I remember the story I've told a million times of, of the of the medical resident who, in his residency, he uh, it was in an off-site STD clinic that week, and he showed up at the clinic. And uh, and there was this waiting room with all these men in it, and they were all waiting in line, and there was a door and a little window up at the front, and he went up to the door, but it was locked, and there was no obvious way to buzz in or get in, so he, he kind of butted in line and, and tapped on the window and said, um, I, I need to see the doctor. And and woman said, you get, and, get and stand in line. And he was confused. She went away. When she came back, he says, no, no, I mean, um, I, I'm a doctor. And she said, I don't care how you got your disease. I don't care if you're the Pope. You got it the same way as everyone else. Now go stand in line. And then she walked away. And he didn't know what to do. So he got to the back and he stood in line. And as he stood in that line in the STD clinic, he said, the amount of shame, it's like his entire life of shame came down and overwhelmed him. And for the first time, he found out, he felt his own brokenness, his own shame, how everything about him was wrong and it was overwhelming. But friends, if you want to meet Jesus, the great physician, you've got to go stand in the big shameful line of sinners with the rest of us because Jesus only saves sinners. It's the only class of human beings that he came to rescue. And when you stand in that line, friends, you are standing in line with a whole lot of other Christians throughout history who have named themselves as big shameful sinners and have known that in that they are loved with the compassion and faithfulness of Jesus who identifies with the bruised, the broken, the helpless, the weak, the poor, and the sinful. Martin Luther, the reformer, said the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin And what's scandalously unique about Jesus is just that, that he does all the saving. It's good news. In verse 6, he calls it the grace of Christ. In verse 7, he calls it the gospel of Christ. In verse 8, he calls it the gospel. In verse 9, he calls it the gospel. In verse 11, he calls it the gospel, that your sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It's about salvation by God. A church where, you know, a church can, can have the world's best programming and the splashiest production and the sexiest marketing and the slickest communications and the most popular options and the nicest building and the biggest parking lot and the largest budget and the most active congregation, friends. But if you do not have the gospel front and center every single day, you're lost. Because the gospel is central to everything you are and do. When that happens, then your church, your ministry, your family, without that, it becomes one massive shame factory. And you're going to pass that shame onto your kids and onto your grandkids. And they're going to be crushed just like you're crushed. And they're going to try to fake it just like you try to fake it. And they're going to put on their mask just like you put on your mask. And they're going to be on their treadmill just like you're on their treadmill. And it's all going to be reinforced by a church culture that's not about the gospel. It's about the success of the religious establishments and looking like you're a good Christian when in reality the good Christian looks shamed and broken and bruised and humbled and filled with love and confidence and joy because they know they're loved. Why would you want to go back to religious moralism? You know, every pastor has a toolbox 
because as religious professionals, we want to help people obey God. We're highly motivated to help. And, uh, and every pastor has a toolbox. And Jesus comes up to my pastor's toolbox, and he says, open your toolbox, Greg. And I open my toolbox. I got all kinds of tools in there. I, first one I take out is my hammer. My hammer is, is guilt manipulation. You can get a lot done hammering people with guilt. And Jesus says, now, Greg, I died for these people. You can't use guilt to manipulate them. They don't carry their guilt anymore. I carried that for them to the cross. And he takes away my hammer. And I'm like, Jesus, I can't do anything without my hammer. He says, you don't need the hammer. So I take out my screwdriver, Philip's head. It's the good one. And, uh, and that's shame. And there are things you can accomplish through shame that you can never get done through guilt. You can make people do things that they would never do by twisting their shame and using it against them. And Jesus takes away my Phillips screwdriver and says, Greg, I don't want you using shame to manipulate these people anymore because I carried their shame for them and I clothed them with my eyes and they are clothed in my holiness and righteousness. They bear their shame no more and he takes it away. And so I, I grab my wrench. My wrench is people pleasing what other people are going to think. He says, oh, Greg, you just give that to me right now. I, okay, you take that. And then I, I, I take out my pliers. My pliers are, are fear of judgment. And he says, I've already taken care of that. These people's judgment day has moved from the future to the past. Now, I was judged in their place on the cross, and they will, and they will not face my judgment. Uh, uh, I will not condemn them. They have passed over from death to life. And so hand me the pliers, and I hand on the pliers. And eventually, by the time Jesus and I are, are finished with this interaction, he has taken every single tool out of my toolbox except one, and it's a sponge. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? He says, it's the gospel. I'm like, oh, because that's all we really have. Paul says, it's the gospel that's the power of God to save. And he says, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to godlessness and to actually lead a holy life. Why would you want to go back to something different? What if... You know, Christianity in America has got it wrong. Um, my, my old roommate from, from seminary days long, long ago was a, a guy, Dave Filson, uh, and he was from Nashville. And, and I remember him talking about before seminary, he had worked at No Charlie's, you know, doing tables in Nashville. And he said uh, something that was very, very telling. He said, Greg, you understand there was one section that none of us wanted to work in the restaurant industry in Nashville. He said, what was that? guess. I had no idea. Midnight shift? He's like, no, those people give a lot of money. I said, okay, well, well, who do you not want to work with? He said, Sunday lunch crowd in the non-smoking section. Because that's where the Christians were. That's when the church people showed up. And they were the most demanding. They were the most difficult. They had the most opinions, and they were the ones who were going to tell you how to do your job. And at the end of the day, they would stiff you on the tip. He said, the one section everybody wanted to work was the bar, because that's where the alcoholics were, that's where the drinkers were, and that's where the smokers hung out. And he said they were the only people who actually treated you well, they treated you like human beings, and they were generous. What does that say, friends? What if we've got it wrong? What if the Lord has a quarrel with American Christianity? What if the message of the grace of Jesus, the gospel, is so muddied and muddled that it's no longer even clear in our churches? You can see why Paul would be astonished. I mean, some of you know what it's like to grow up in that with your family, your ministry, your church, your movement, where the gospel, maybe it was always there, but it was the side dish and not the main dish. And you know what it did to you. You know how it made you feel. Did it make you love God more or less? 
Did it make God's aroma more sweet and appealing to you? Or did it fill you with dread and despair and anger and deceit and all sorts of unclean things as you tried to fake it? In Colossians, Paul talks about that kind of religion. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's talking about legalism. He says, these are destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But here's the clincher. He says, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They have no power in the face of sin. Why would you go back to that instead of the one gospel of this Jesus who is unique and exclusive? When you get the gospel, when you know you're loved, you stop categorizing other people as good or evil. You stop noticing other people's sins. You stop faking it. You stop stop trying trying to hide and you begin letting people in you get off your your performance treadmill and you embrace your own limitations because you don't have to measure up you don't have to accomplish anything you can just sit in your mess and let god love you you can find yourself drawn to jesus as one who embraces sinners like us that's the good news i know i'm always the biggest sinner in the room no one needs to convince me of that and yet the gospel frees me up to own that to be the shameful sinner Knowing I am loved, simul justus et peccator is the Reformation slogan, simultaneously righteous in God's eyes on account of Christ, and yet at the same time, a big, shameful sinner. I share the story of the two coal miners who were trapped in a mine when a, when a, a, a vein collapsed and, and encased them in a small chamber. And as they were waiting, hoping that they would be noticed, the air began to get thin after many, many hours. And they each had their respirators, and so they put on their respirators as it began to become hard to breathe. And it became very clear after a very small amount of time that one of the respirators wasn't working. It was malfunctioning. And one of the guys looked at his buddy who didn't have a good respirator, and he, he's, he was thinking about him, uh, about his, his wife, about his new baby boy. And he himself was single, and as his friend passed out and became unconscious, he went over and sat next to him and took off his respirator and put it on his buddy. And two days later, they brought his buddy out of the mine alive, but he had died. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you, except imagine that that wasn't his best friend. Imagine that was the man who stole his wife. Because that's what Jesus did for you. It's when we were his enemies that Christ died for us. This is a God who saves the world by giving up power. It's a message about a truly unique Savior. And that's good news for sinners like us. Ellie's church and Bible college had tried everything and had failed because she was still an addict and she couldn't change. But eventually, she found herself in a different kind of church with a different kind of ethos, far from home, very different from her home church, very different from her Bible college. And it took a lot of months, maybe a year, before anything external started to happen in her life. Months and months went by before the random meetings with men came to an end. But a pastor friend of mine was there, and he watched the whole thing unfold. And he says he could see it coming. He knew it was coming because he could see Ellie sitting in the back row of his church on Sunday mornings, and there would be tears streaming down her face as she sat in worship. She'd be crying and weeping as she sat listening to the Word of God. 
God. And as she'd come forward for communion, she'd have, she, it would look like a dam had burst inside her soul and the water was flowing over her. And that's precisely what had actually happened. Something had changed inside of her where she began for the first time in her life to feel loved by a father in heaven. All those hookups looking for a man who will see her and love her as she actually was. And for the first time in her life, she was actually feeling the love that she had been looking for in her addiction. She had begun feeling loved, loved by God, loved by a father who delights in her, who sings over her, who is pleased with her, who embraces her, knowing her nakedness, knowing her shame. This pastor and his wife remember having her over for a bottle of wine on her six-month anniversary of her sobriety from that particular addiction. They were celebrating not what she had accomplished, but what God had accomplished in her, a God who had loved her and delighted in her, even back at Bible college, even in the midst of her sin, even then when there was therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the, it's the gospel. It's, it's scandalous that a God would sacrifice himself for big, shameful sinners like us. See, before religion was all about her and what she was going to do to serve God, and now it was all about God and what he had already done to serve her. Elliot found love, God's love, infinite, unstoppable the attraction that God has to the broken and the beaten down and the addicted and the shamed. It's the love of a father who closes us with his eyes and she's never going back because she's now got a taste of the scandalous gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I give you thanks for the scandal of the gospel of Christ who loves us even in our sin even in our shame, even in our pride, even in our blindness, you have loved us, our God. And so we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you would bring good news to us, your church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.